Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thank you so much for making us a part of your Thursday morning. We got a lot to dive into. NBA free agency starts in just about nine hours or so from now. Officially, as we know, the tampering period is way underway. I have a big question in 20 minutes I want to get to, or really 15 minutes. Why is Greg Popovich still coaching the Spurs? I want to get into that. In a little bit. As a reminder, we are coming to you live from where else but the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Before we get into the NBA, I do want to make one NFL point here to start off the show. And that is, of course, Baker Mayfield's name. Of course, Baker Mayfield's um, status has been a major question so far of this NFL offseason. I have one question that no one really has been able to answer and no one's really been talking about so far when it comes to Baker Mayfield, and that is this. Why are more teams interested in him? Like, he is right now on the trading block. And the Browns and Baker have made no bones about it. They have not hid their feelings toward each other. A divorce seems inevitable, even though I think for right now for Baker and the Browns, the best case for both of them is to wait it out and see if Deshaun Watson is suspended a year try to have a reconciliation and try to have them sell, uh, both parties be back next year playing together. I think it's best for the Browns, best for the Baker Mayfield. Anyway, doesn't mean that's going to happen. So, why are more teams now interested in Baker Mayfield services? This is a guy who's a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. This is a guy who, in the right situation, I think can help get you to a Super Bowl. He is a guy that I think is a Super Bowl caliber quarterback. Again, you need... A great offense line, great receivers, great defense, great head coach. You need a lot more to help Baker get there. Let's say other quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or Josh Allen. I recognize that. But I do think if you are in the playoffs, he is a he is a, a quarterback you can feel confident in that will play well in the playoffs. So you have a top 15 quarterback. You have a quarterback that is capable of winning a Super Bowl. And you have a quarterback that's available on the cheap. This is a guy who is only making $18.8 million this uh, this season, which to me is dirt cheap when you look at the insanely uh, high salaries that quarterbacks are now getting, and it's only going up and up and up. So you are getting a quarterback at more than half the value salary-wise of most of the top guys in the NFL, and to acquire him, you get him on the cheap. Like, right now, if the, you were to make a team, if your team was about to make a trade for Baker Mayfield, what are you giving up? Fifth round pick? Sixth round pick? Like a conditional pick? It is very low. So the price is very cheap. Draft-wise, you know, and compensation-wise and salary-wise, he's a quarter that can get you to the promised land. And to me, he's a top 15 quarterback. With that said, only two teams are calling. Why is that? How come the only two teams interested in Baker Mayfield services for this season are the Seattle Seahawks and the Carolina Panthers. It makes no sense to me. Like, I get 
when you look around the NFL, sure, maybe it's a little harder to find some landing spots. But even if you're a team like, let's say, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, obviously, they have Tom Brady. But if you're Tampa Bay, what are truly, what are the odds that Tom Brady is back in Tampa next year? I say slim to none. Because whether it's retirement, which you already know he retired once just last year, and it was a very quick return, but he made the decision he was done playing. And also, these Dolphins rumors are very real. They keep on, you know, there's more and more stories popping up and kind of showing you how close Tom Brady was to becoming a member of the Dolphins. I think if you're the Buccaneers, with Tom Brady being an impendent free agent, you can't feel great that he's going to be back on your team next year with either him retiring or either him playing for the Dolphins. So wouldn't you want to already kind of get out ahead of your future where you sign long-term deals to players to keep this core together, right? It's not like Tom Brady leaves and all of a sudden you are back to being irrelevant. The Buccaneers are trying to be here to stay. They are trying to be here longer than just Tom Brady, uh, just Tom Brady's tenure. So one of the ways to do that is already starting to think about your future while you're in the present time. Why don't you trade for Baker Mayfield? Like honestly, why don't you trade for Baker Mayfield? Get him on the cheap fifth, sixth round quarterback or a fifth, sixth round pick. Have him sit behind Tom Brady for a year. Have him learn behind the goat, and then. Next year when Tom Brady leaves, when Tom Brady retires, you have Baker Mayfield who's already familiar with the offense, already having some some chemistry built with the roster already, then come in and take your team to the next level. Like, what else are you going to do next year for the Buccaneers? Draft a quarterback? Well, you're not going to be, you know, high enough to uh, get a quarterback. Sign up for agent? Like, good luck. What else are you going to do? So, for me, there is, there is teams and there are situations where they should be interested in Baker Mayfield, where he is a clear and obvious upgrade. But with that said, no one is calling. And I think teams are getting too wrapped up in what was a down 2021 season and missing the entire picture. Yes, Baker will call for what it is. Baker sucked last year. But there's really no other way to put it. But for me, a lot of his struggles last year came because of his shoulder injury he suffered in week number two against the Texans. I know it's a left shoulder injury. It's not his throwing shoulder. But it had a major impact on and then he heard it even worse a few weeks later in the Cardinals game where J.J. Watt kind of landed on it and he was running off with his shoulder. You know, I thought he was done for the year, to be honest. It looked horrible. He was in a lot of pain. He played through it to his credit. He was tough. You know, he was tough to play through it. But it's almost, I hate to say it, playing through it being that tough almost worked against him. Teams are now holding that against him because they saw him play, saw him struggle, and instead of realizing the situation, the circumstances, he is playing very hurt. Team just saying, oh, you know, he's not very good. He's inaccurate. His throws are weak. You know, he's not making great decisions, which is on him. We are not interested. But instead of looking at the full picture, which the full picture is, this guy is really good. And not to mention, had to overcome so much adversity that a lot of quarterbacks wouldn't be able to make it through. Like, if you look at what he's had to overcome in Cleveland, there was four years as a member of the Browns, right? He came in. His first head coach as a member of the Browns, was Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson. I will give $100 right now to any listener who tells me the one quarterback, any quarterback, that had success under Hugh Jackson. Name me the quarterback that had success under Hugh Jackson. It's a trick question because you can't. Every quarterback has struggled under Hugh Jackson's reign. So why are we thinking, why are you holding it against Baker Mayfield, his struggles early on, when he was dealing with Hugh Jackson as his first head coach, who gets fired midway through year number one. They had to deal with Greg Williams, the interim, 
through the, the rest half of the season. Then, in year two, you have some you somehow go from bad, Hugh Jackson, to worse and Freddie Kitchens. That Freddie Kitchens era in Cleveland was going to go down as one of the most comical head coaching errors in all of NFL history. It was that bad. It was that pathetic. So in, first, in the first two years of Baker Mayfield's NFL career, he had three head coaches total. Two of them are, are total jokes, total losers, and Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchens. Kevin Stefanski comes in and finally brings some stability to the organization, but it took until year number three for Baker to get a competent head coach. He had four head coaches his first three years in the NFL. Even before he got to the Browns, he was coming in and taking over a team that had previously lost 10 or had 10 straight losing seasons. Baker Mayfield was going to a Browns team that had 10 straight losing seasons before his arrival. So he's going to a team that struggled mightily. Again, the Browns are the biggest laughing stock in the NFL. Right? Let's not pretend that they are the Browns now. They've been that way for a while. They have always been kind of the butt of the joke. They've always been just a total dumpster fire and doing things the wrong way, getting in their own, you know, being their own worst enemy. So you have a totally incompetent organization that drafts Baker Mayfield with two clowns as head coaches his first two seasons. And then finally, despite that, despite have you know, despite getting through Hugh Jackson, despite getting through Freddie Kitchens, he was able to help guide the Browns in 2020 to the playoffs for the first time since 2002 and win a playoff game for the first time in 26 years. And he played well in that playoff game. It wasn't like he was just along for the ride. Like guys like Jimmy Garoppolo, I get why there aren't a lot of teams falling over themselves for Jimmy Garoppolo, despite the fact that in the last three years, he's gotten to... One Super Bowl appearance and two NFC title games. I get why teams are not throwing pick after pick after pick to the 49ers because Jimmy G is a guy who's along for the ride. Baker Mayfield was not along for the ride in 2020. In that playoff game, 263 passing yards, three touchdowns, no picks, 91, Q, uh, 90, 91 quarterback rating. Excuse me. That's pretty good. That's a guy who played well in Pittsburgh against a team that is historically owned the Browns, been their daddy, goes in there, plays well. But it wasn't even just a one playoff game. The last eight games of that 2020 season will take the last six regular season games and the two playoff games Baker Mayfield played in in 2020. You add them together, Baker Mayfield in that final eight-game stretch threw 15 touchdowns to two picks. 15 touchdowns to just two interceptions the last eight games of the year. The eight most important games of the Browns franchise, arguably, when they restarted. And Baker Mayfield played pretty well. But despite that success he's had, despite 2020 going well and Baker Mayfield doing the impossible, which is winning in Cleveland, teams right now are viewing Baker Mayfield like he's Josh Rosen. No one is taking a flyer. How many times have we seen bad quarterbacks get a second and third opportunity? It happens all the time. Oh, you know, this is uh, blamed, and, and that's an excuse, and this and that. It's not his fault, or we think our system works better for this guy. So many quarterbacks, so many bad quarterbacks, get second, third, and fourth chances just because there are excuses made for them. There are no excuses being made for Baker Mayfield, and I don't understand why. He has a legitimate excuse. He got hurt in week two. For the first time in Baker's career, heading into the 2021 season, 
He had the same offensive coordinator, same head coach, same playbook, same terminology. That is huge. He's only had one year in his career where everything was the same from one year to the next. And the most frustrating part about Baker getting hurt is that he couldn't show his growth and development in the offense from one year to the next. Most of his off-seasons were spent learning a brand new playbook. It's hard to work on yourself. It's hard to get better as a quarterback when all you're doing is scrambling to learn the playbook, learn the tom- uh, terminology, and basically spend your off-season learning a new language. I mean, look, I'm sure everyone listening right now has taken some sort of second language in elementary school, high school, college. For me, it was Spanish. That took seven years of Spanish. I'll be completely honest. I am horrendous at Spanish. The Spanish language and me do not get along. It's very tough to understand. And learning a second language is not easy. Imagine being an NFL quarterback and your first three years on the job basically having to learn three languages in a row. That is what Baker Mayfield has had to do in his career so far. So yes, he got hurt and he stunk last year. Is that a reason though to just throw throw Baker Mayfield off to the side and think he's not worthy? No. And a lot of these teams are making a mistake because you are able right now to do the rare thing in football. Get a quarterback on the cheap. Buy low. Salary-wise, draft capital-wise, and have Baker Mayfield, even if he doesn't play this year, be on your roster and develop towards next year where you think you can re-sign him for a better deal. Like there, to me, I looked around the NFL. I can make the argument, Baker Mayfield right now is an upgrade for at least 15 teams. 15 teams. Go through the list. Baker or this guy? Baker or that guy? I would say right now, 15 teams at least would have Baker Mayfield come in and be an upgrade over their current starting quarterback. But despite that, two teams are interested. Seattle, Carolina. Why? What am I missing? What am I missing with Baker Mayfield where teams in the NFL are not interested in a guy who to me is very talented, had one bad year because of injuries, Got the Browns to the playoffs for the first time since 2002 and won a playoff game for the first time since uh, in 26 years. Why are people not giving Baker Mayfield the respect in a league that is so dead set on trying to find the next quarterback? Is Baker Mayfield the top five quarterback in the NFL? No, he's not. But there are plenty of worse guys on rosters than him right now. And I don't get why teams are turning a blind eye to Baker this offseason. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Plenty of ways to comment, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet uh, at Twitter, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. And YouTube, Worldwide Sports Network. Why are teams not giving Baker Mayfield the respect he deserves? Why are no teams outside of the desperate Panthers and the desperate Seahawks, who are still dragging their feet anyway, why are no other teams interested in Baker Mayfield's services? Again, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Check us out, YouTube, Worldwide Sports on Eric, and also Facebook, same handle, Worldwide Sports on Eric, to comment your thoughts on why teams are not interested in Baker Mayfield. Are you with me? Is Baker being disrespected by the rest of the NFL, or is it warranted? Is he truly not as good as I'm trying to make him out to be? We'll get your thoughts, and when we return, we had a big trade go down in the NBA yesterday. DeJounte Murray uh, goes from the Spurs to the Hawks, and it raises one question. For me, more from the Spurs perspective, we'll discuss what that question is when we return us to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
All right, we are back here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, having a little technical difficulties with the music, at least. Hopefully, by the next time we uh, we are back rejoining here, we'll get a little more tunes for you coming back. But let's head on the NBA, because obviously today, NBA Free Agency officially starts 6 o'clock Eastern, so just under 9 hours or so from now. But we had a big trade yesterday. Spurs traded Jontae Murray to the Hawks. Three first-round picks, a pick swap, and Danilo Gallinari. This trade, to me, raises one question. Why is Greg Popovich still coaching? Why did he sign up for what is going to be a massive rebuild in San Antonio? Like, this trade doesn't come as a shock, right? It's not like out of nowhere, out of the blue, boom, Spurs trade Jante Murray. Oh, my God. I can't believe it. This is crazy. No one saw this coming. What a blockbuster trade that was totally unexpected. This has been rumored for a while. So Greg Popovich, for sure, knew heading into this offseason, yeah, it's most likely our best player is not going to be here. It's most likely we're not going to pay him, and instead we're going to already start to collect as many picks as possible and enter a rebuild. Pop knew what was coming and still decided to not retire, and it doesn't make much sense to me. Like, what are you, what are you doing? At this point in your career, why are you still coaching the Spurs? What is there to gain? Now, you look now, you take DeJounte Murray off San Antonio. This is one of the worst rosters in the NBA, by far. And they're not going to win many games. They struggled even last year when they had DeJounte Murray. This team's going to be even worse. And it's clear their initiative. They are tanking. They want to get a few high picks. They want to get those lottery balls bouncing in their favor as much as possible. So, with the Spurs not really hiding from the fact that they are tanking, with the DeJounte Murray rumors being out there for a while now and having it be kind of known, hey, this guy's going to be on the move, why is Greg Popovich, why is he an all-time great coach of his caliber signing up to, to continue on? Like, it doesn't make any sense. This is the time to get out. This is the time to call it a career, hang it up, and ride off into the sunset. Why do you want to continue to grind away on a team that's going to win, what, 23 games? 25 games? Like, Popovich is insanely, insanely accomplished. There's nothing left for him to prove. Clearly, right? there's nothing left for Pop to, uh, to prove. There's really nothing left for him to accomplish. Like, if you wanted, it's one thing if you want to chase the wins record and say, oh, you know, I want to be the all-time winningest coach, fine. He's done that. He has the most wins by an NBA coach in history. 1,344. Passed Don Nelson earlier uh, this past year. So you have the wins record, most wins by an NBA head coach. You have five titles to your name. You have two gold medals, so if you want to talk about international success, Popovich has that. What else is there to coach? Like, what else is there to do? There's nothing left to accomplish, so what are you doing? Dude, get get away. <laughs> Enjoy life. Go on the beach. Take a vacation. Drink some margaritas. Don't give a care in the world, especially for someone who hates the media as much as he does, who disdains media access more than anyone in, you know, on this country. I mean, he hates, he hates the media and the free press, maybe more than some of these dictators in other countries, <laughs> right? Anytime you have to give a press conference or an interview, Pavich gives you one word and he looks upset doing it. So he clearly hates talking to the media, which is not you know, really a reason to coach anyway, but he despises that part of the job. You lose your best player, Najante Murray. 
Your team is tanking. You got no talent on the team. You already have the most wins in NBA history. You have five championships. You have two gold medals to add on top of it as well. What is Pop doing? Why are you sticking around? For what? Like, are you really going to grind through this season and then retire? Like, I, for me, I think the end of the road is soon. I would be surprised if this time next year, Greg Popovich is still coaching the Spurs. So I think officially, unofficially, however he wants to do it, I think this is his last year uh, as a head coach in the NBA. Why? Why go out this way? Why go out on a team that's going to be one of the worst in the NBA? Enjoy life, man. Hang it up. Spend some time with your family. Do anything but grind away and get frustrated and upset watching young players make mistakes and be being nowhere near what is a title contending team. Like, I was trying to rack my brain before. Have we seen a, a coach or a player that has been so accomplished stick around for what is going to be the bad years? Like Tom Brady. Tom Brady's still playing, obviously, but he left New England, which we thought was going to be unthinkable. He left New England because in 2019, even though this team was in the playoffs, even though they won the division, even though they had a home playoff game, Tom Brady saw the right on the wall. This team is going to get a lot worse before they get better. Like, my chances of winning another Super Bowl in uh, New England are minuscule at best. So he got out. He wasn't going down with the ship. He wasn't, not that they're ever going to be like a four or five win team. He was not going to stay in New England to have it get to that point. Sean Payton just stepped away from a Saints team that went 9-8 and eight last year. Now, Sean Payton would tell you that was one of the hardest coaching jobs he's ever done with the lack of talent, with all the adversity the Saints had to overcome. James Winston getting hurt, having like five quarterbacks start. You know, the first part of the season, they were away from their facility because of uh, a hurricane that tore through and like the first month they were uh, away. Like there is, for all-time greats, coaches and players, you go through a lot. It takes so much effort and energy to be one of the best and consistently one of the best. You don't want to waste your time or you don't want to go down with the ship and waste that energy on what is going to be a bad team. Like, I can't recall any, honestly, any great coach that has stuck around to still coach a rebuild that I don't think is going to see the end of it. Like, Steve Kerr, when the Warriors had their two down years, that was because of what? Injury. Steve Kerr still kind of saw, okay, you know what? There's a chance on the other side of this. We still have Steph healthy. Clay Thompson comes back healthy. We could still have a shot. And obviously, we know the Warriors won a title. But where is the end game here for Pop? I think this is his last season coaching. And it's like, if this is it, this is going to be it. Even if you coach two more years. Where is this Spurs team going in two or three years? They are tank, 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 tanking it up. And this is not a one-year rebuild. This is going to be a, a yearly process here to get lottery balls and next year's draft and the year after that and the year after. This is like a three-year undergoing just to just to kind of sort of get talent on the roster. So what are you, what are you sticking it out for? Hang it up, have someone else deal with it, kick your feet up, and enjoy being one of the five all-time greatest coaches in NBA history. Doesn't make much sense. To me, doesn't make much sense at all. I don't get what Pop is doing in terms of still coaching and pushing this out, despite the fact that your team is going to be one of the worst next season. Now, on the flip side of this trade, right, the Hawks get DeJounte Murray. And this now becomes one of the best backcourts in all the NBA with Trey Young and Murray. Like, I was looking around, probably at least definitely top five. And it's like outside of Stephen Clay, outside of 
you know, one or two of their backcourts, there's not many better than right now a DeJounte Murray, Trey Young uh, pairing. This is like a top three backcourt in the NBA. This is a huge get for the Hawks. I like this fit a lot because not only now do you get a running mate with Trey Young, you get someone that can, you know, handle the ball, takes the pressure off of him, play better defense, which, you know, is something the Hawks really struggle at. This is a good defender in Murray. He will bring a much-needed uh, defensive aptitude to this Atlanta team. But it's also now adding, finally, a second threat to the Hawks. Now, we saw when they had their playoff success two years ago, a lot of it was on Trey Young. He killed the Knicks, played really well against the Sixers before falling to the Bucks. This year, this past year in 2022, the Hawks got smoked in the playoffs, swept by the Heat, because guess what? The Heat just said, you know what? We're going to bully Trey Young. We're going to get in his face. We're going to double team him. We're going to triple team him. We're not letting him get in the ball in his hands. They started double teaming him when he didn't even have the ball in his hands before he even crossed half court. The Heat said, have anyone else on this Hawks team beat us? And guess what? It didn't happen. Didn't happen. Couldn't find anyone. The Hawks really struggled in that first round series in part because no one outside of Trey Young was able to take over. Trey Young had the worst postseason of his career now. It's only been two years, so you know it's a small sample size. But by far the worst series that he got to him. Now when you bring in DeJounte Murray, you are now forcing teams like the, the Heat to kind of scale back a little bit on that aggressive double team. On that aggressive takeaway of Trey Young because now you have someone that can make defenses pay. That can, you know, hurt teams if they're double or triple teaming Trey Young. Didn't have that before. Now you do. So you add defense, you add size, but most importantly, you just free up Trey Young, not only to be off the ball, but now also free Trey Young up from constantly getting double and triple teamed, constantly getting harassed by finally putting a real second threat on the floor to make defenses and give them pause about basically trying to say, hey, have anyone but Trey Young beat us? Because guess what? Now they have a guy in DeJounte Murray that can make defenses pay. So I like this one a lot for, uh, for the Hawks. And uh, they finally now have an answer, if you will, on offense that gives teams pause about sending double teams Trey Young's way. One other free agent point before, we'll get to the next year in five minutes. I want to get to their pursuit of Jalen Brunson. But one other uh, free agent point I want, I want to make here and give credit to, I want to give credit to James Harden. It's a lot easier said than done to say, I want to win, I want to do anything it takes to win. To James Harden's credit, and I have not been the biggest James Harden fan whatsoever, he opted out yesterday of his $47 million play option. He's now a free agent. Now, Bell reports, it seems he's going to re-sign in Philly, but re-sign in Philly for a more team-friendly deal, open up different avenues for the Sixers to have cap space to add talent on the roster still. I give James Harden a lot of respect. Because you know what? He is someone that I've given up on. He, to me, is someone you cannot rely on in the postseason to get the job done. And I think now he is starting to realize that. And he realized, you know what? I can no longer be the guy. And frankly, he doesn't want to be the guy with how passive he was and how, you know, defer, you know, he loved to defer to Maxi and to Embiid. He does not want the ball in his hands in the big moment. That's for sure. So he realized, well, one of the ways I get pressure off of myself is by having more talented players come on the Sixers, right? It just makes more sense. So now with him renegotiating a deal, becoming a free agent, taking less money, you know, it's going to be a longer term deal, but taking less money and definitely for sure not getting anywhere in the neighborhood of $47 million. 
You now give the Sixers flexibility to add talent to their roster. And for the first time in James Harden's career, he actually put his money where his mouth is when it comes to being a, a player that wants to win a title. And we have heard James Harden and is going back to his final days, literally his final days in Houston. One of the reasons he wanted out of the Rockets because he was, you know, he kept saying, I want to win a, uh, win a ring. I'm going to win a championship. That's why he went to Brooklyn. He went to Brooklyn because in his mind, it was the easy way out. James Harden is someone who does want to take the easy way out. I'm not going to hide for that. I'm not going to take that back. He wants to win a ring, but wants to do so in the easy way. That's why he went to Brooklyn because he can play with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. And in that short, simple size, they played together 16 games. There's a reason why their offense was one of the best in history. One of the most efficient. Because James Harden ran the point and just was, was deferring. Finding James, uh, finding Kevin Durant. Finding Kyrie Irving. He wasn't shooting that much. He wasn't scoring that much. You look at his numbers. His assist numbers were the highest of his career. And his point total was one of the lowest of his careers. Oh, one of the lowest numbers of his career. He was fine. He actually preferred to be the guy that was a pass-first player. Just to be a true point guard here and there, sure, he'll get his. He wanted to defer. And when he saw Kyrie Irving not getting the shot, when he saw his workload last season increase, he goes, I didn't sign up for this. Which, again, goes back to wanting a ring the easy way. That's what forced his trade to Philly. He still wants a ring the easy way. But his credit, at least, he's finally putting his money where his mouth is where, look, it's tough to turn down $47 million next season. But he did it. He'll sign for longer. You know, he'll get overall more money than just $47 million on a longer-term deal with the Sixers. But he's at least giving them the opportunity to create room to bring in guys like P.J. Tucker. Maybe bring in another wing, you know, shooter slash defender, 3 and D defender, that can, you know, make Philly's bench a little bit more potent. To Harden's credit, he is at least finally, you know, stepping up and saying, not only do I want to uh, want to win a ring, I will actually take tangible steps to having that team of mine accomplish that. It's still going to be on him to play well, and I have severe doubts. Like, I'm not picking Philly to be a legitimate title contender next year. I'm sorry I can't. James Harden's still going to have to have some sort of impact, and Tyrese Maxey is going to have to have a big explosion in year three for the Sixers, in my mind, to be viewed as a legitimate title contender. So I'm not, you know, sitting here saying, oh, I'm buying into Philly. But I will just give James Harden credit. I want to be fair here and saying, you know what? For someone who I've criticized a ton, for someone who I've given up on a lot, and someone who I said the Sixers should have no business re-signing, to Harden's credit, he's at least taken more money to give the Sixers options to bring in more talented players to give themselves the best chance of winning a title. Easier said than done. We saw Kyrie Irving opt into a $36 million uh, player option for the Nets. Why? Because outside of that, it was $6 million you know, mid-level exceptions anywhere else around the league. He was not getting money. Russell Wilson, uh, Russell Wilson, there I go again. Russell Westbrook had a $47 million player option. He opted in because you know why he realized I ain't getting $47 million ever again in my career for one season. I'm taking the money and figuring it out later. To Harden's credit, he said, you know what? Taking the money selfishly would work best for me. I'm going to do in this case, in this example, what is best for the team. So I'm curious your thoughts here on the Ryan Hicks show as we return. The Knicks are pursuing Jalen Brunson. Now that pursuit, according to Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports, is getting more intense. Because not just the Knicks that are interested, it's the Mavericks. And now the Heat 
or a third team that have that have gotten a meeting with Jalen Brunson scheduled for later today? Are the Knicks fools for for chasing Jalen Brunson? Should they overpay for a Villanova point guard that hasn't done much really outside of this year and really outside of this postseason? We'll discuss that when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. There we go. Got the music rolling here on a Thursday morning. Is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So one thing I don't get as we get ready for NBA free agency to officially commence are the folks that are kind of clowning the Knicks and making fun of them for pursuing Jalen Brunson. The Knicks are doing the right thing here. In pursuing Jalen Brunson and trying to sign him uh, this offseason. Look, first of all, everyone's got to pump the brakes and relax on the money. And one of the biggest reasons why people are making fun of the Knicks for pursuing Jalen Brunson is, oh, wow, you're going to give this guy $25 million a year, $27.5 million a year, overpaid. Here's the reality in the NBA, folks. Everyone in the NBA gets above market value when it comes to free agency. Everyone has to overpay for the most part in order to get players on their team. So I'm not going to sit here and look at a Knicks team that is, again, void of talent for the most part outside of really uh, R.J. Barrett. I like Mitchell Robinson. He's, he's coming along well. But the Knicks need talented players. Am I going to really sit here and in one breath say, oh, the Knicks get no stars. Yet again, they swing and miss. This team stinks. But then on the same breath saying, oh, they're trying to sign Jalen Brunson, but ah, too much money. They're, they're fools. They're making a mistake. What idiots? Get it? It's one or the other. Brunson is a great first move here for the Knicks if they can sign him. And I don't get the negativity from Knicks fans or from outside NBA voices towards the signing. Like the Knicks, Jalen Brunson fills what has been a dark hole, a black hole for this franchise for the last 15 years. Like if you go back, the last true Knicks point guard that was young, athletic, playmaking, it was Stephon Marbury 15 years ago. This team has struggled mightily to find a point guard that can truly and efficiently run the offense at a high level. And now, you have a chance with Jalen Brunson out there, if you could sign him, to have a point guard that is young, that is a playmaker, that could score but also facilitate really well, and get the offense on track. Like, being a Knicks fan myself, watching their offense being run by either, you know, 35-year-old Derrick Rose or guys like Alec Burks and Kemba Walker. Kemba Walker was no knees left. and had to be sat down last year. And Alec Burks was their de facto point guard. The guy's not even a point guard. The Knicks had players running the offense that aren't point guards. That aren't used to facilitating and setting up an offense. So do you know how hard it is for even guys like Julius Randle for R.J. Barrett to kind of find the road and get an offense moving in rhythm and working for them when they don't even have the right guy running the entire point? What are we doing? Why are people then trying to say, oh, the Knicks are making a big mistake? They desperately need a point guard to at least get the offense rolling here and get everyone on the floor spaced correctly. And not to mention, with Brunson, sure, the sample size is very small. Right, I know he really hasn't done much and even playing in the shadow of Luka Doncic outside of those first two playoff games against the Jazz where Luka was out and Jalen Brunson played really well. There's not a ton of tape. There's not a ton of uh, things to point to and say, oh, Jalen Brunson ran the offense on his own really well. 
He's shown you flashes, though. He's shown you, at least in the postseason, he can, he can make plays. He can shine. When the team needs him, he stepped up the most. So, especially in this last season, right, the, the final season for Jalen Brunson, at least for right now, in Dallas, he played well. In the biggest moment of his career, he stepped up and played the best season of his career, both regular season-wise and playoff-wise. That's something. That at least shows you, okay, this is a guy you can trust for the Knicks that you hope you're playing big games in a few years. Like, let's just maybe put this out here before we even go any further. He's not the savior. He is not the finishing piece for the Knicks. He's not even the centerpiece of this team. Jalen Brunson is merely a starting point for the Knicks going forward. This is the first of what you hope are going to be many moves now this offseason, but also in the next few years to get a competent team on the court. And that starts getting a competent team on the court, getting this team, you know, even getting the most out of your own players currently on the roster, it starts with having the right personnel on the court. Again, the Knicks have not had a point guard the last 15 years, really since Stephon Marbury. And that, in part, I think has hurt the games of R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle at times because, again, they aren't having the offense truly set up the way it needs to be. They aren't having a true facilitator at the point and kind of giving them the best looks possible. So you have, again, non-point guards like Alec Burks trying to get Julius Randle in spots to succeed. That's not easy. Julius Randle has his own issues, right? And there are very big concerns, even if, first of all, if he's even on the roster next year, we'll see. But if he is on the roster, it's also tough for him at times to get spacing, to get open looks, in part because when you have Alec Burks, who's not accustomed to being a point guard, now having to run and facilitate the offense, it's not going to work very well. So now, worst case scenario, you bring Jalen Brunson in. I think he can open up and elevate the games of Barrett and Randall. Now you can at least get R.J. Barrett in more favorable situations. Maybe get him better looks. For, you know, penetrate the defense from the point guard position because Jalen Brunson could score. And again, that gives kickout looks to R.J. Barrett. That sucks defenses in. And all of a sudden, R.J. Barrett can, you know, find his own way, make some plays on his own. Julius Randall. As we know, really struggled big time last year. Really struggled mildly, forced a lot of shots, was not, you know, took too many contested shots. Maybe, just maybe, he can get back to that 2020-2021 level in part because you have a real point general operating the floor and creating some space for him. So for the Knicks, I I don't get the negativity uh, of this signing or this pursuit, I should say, because now there's even more competition, this pursuit of Jalen Brunson. It is the perfect move. They desperately need Brunson. Again, it is not the finishing piece. He is not the savior coming to New York. He is not a star. He is not a superstar. He is the beginning. He is a guy that you hope, best case scenario, comes in, makes R.J. Barrett a better player. Makes Julius Randle a better player. Makes Mitchell Robinson a better player. Getting a real floor general to run the offense. And the Knicks need help. This is an offense that was plotting. This is an offense that too many times was iso ball last year. And too many times, oh, three seconds on the shot clock, let me just chuck it up. This offense was hard to watch for a large part of last season. The defense got worse, but the offense didn't get better. So now you at least bring in someone who can, can open up the offense for the first time in years. Like even in the Knicks, we'll call it the, the quote-unquote heyday, the Carmelo Anthony days. The Knicks had, at that time, 
Raymond Felton and Jeremy Lin running the point at different points. Like, sure, Lin Sandy was great for a few months. That was short-lived. And Raymond Felton's eating powdered donuts all the time. Like, they have truly been missing a point guard for what has been the last 15 years. So why am I going to say there's an Knicks fan and get mad, get frustrated at the organization for finally trying to address what has been a black hole for the last 15 years? Again, Brunson's not perfect. Yes, I get it. But it has to start somewhere. It has to start somewhere. You can't make big, splashy moves. You're not going to expect to get Dame Lillard to town or Bradley Beal to town or make any of these other blockbuster moves when there's nothing else around. You got to, you know, as they say in bench warmers and others. Well, not really bench warmers. That was, that was actually embarrassing. My apologies. Feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. You need to give a reason for great players to want to come to the Knicks. Right now, there is no reason for great players to come to the Knicks. And there might not even be a reason right now that Jalen Brunson wants to come to the Knicks. Sure, I get his dad's on the staff. But right now, you have a meeting with the Mavericks. You have a meeting with the Heat. If they can offer similar money to what the Knicks are offering, it's, I mean, honestly, I can't fault Jalen Brunson. He says, you know what? I'll play for Miami for similar or maybe even slightly less money. Or I'll stay in Dallas for similar or, you know, slightly less money than what the Knicks are offering me. There's not even incentive right now for Jalen Brunson to come to New York. But if you can get him, if you can convince him to come to your team, run the point, and run the show, I think it finally addresses what has been a dark hole for this franchise for years. But also, it helps to open up the games of your two most important players on the roster right now in Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett for sure will be here. I think he should get extended this offseason. We'll see about Julius Randle if a team will take on his contract. But worst case scenario, if Randall is back next year, the presence of Brunson, having a true point guard for once, I think will only make his game better, make his game easier going forward. So I love this this, this pursuit. I really hope they sign him. I'm not worried about giving Jalen Brunson four for 110 or you know get him $27.5 million a year. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it to address what has been a, a, an Achilles heel for this team for years. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Should the Knicks be clowned? Should the Knicks be made fun of for pursuing Jalen Brunson and over, you know, and uh, trying to go after another star that maybe isn't the true end-all be-all for, uh, for New York? Excuse me, I, I apologize for that. Quickly before we go to break here, I want to circle back to a conversation we had about Greg Popovich. With the Spurs trading DeJounte Murray, if you're a Greg Popovich, I don't get why he's still coaching the Spurs. Rick Semper Tige, I, I apologize, Rick, if I, I butchered the last name. I know I did my apologies. But he writes on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Shows where you can find the live stream of the show. He thinks Pop is sticking around and coaching for two more seasons. I think this is his last year, personally. But if Rick is right, let's just say Rick is right. But either way, whether it's one year or two years, these Spurs are tanking. The Spurs are in no right now, they are in no mood, no, no try, uh, not trying to win many games at all. They are in the lose mode big time. They are in the collecting assets and collecting as much young talent as possible. So even if Rick is right, and it's two years that Pop is on the bench, uh, on the bench, what can you truly expect from this team? What can you truly expect in terms of, of competition and winning for the Spurs? Not much. So I don't really see the benefit, if you're Greg Popovich, of continuing to coach. You knew this trade was coming, and I don't get why he's still kind of standing pat. I don't think it makes much sense, to be honest. I think if you're Greg Popovich, it's best for you to hang it up. It's better for you to just say, you know what? I'm accomplished. I'm the all-time winningest head coach. I have five titles to my name. Now's a good time to step away and walk away. 
to, to me, it doesn't make much sense why Greg Popovich is still continuing to coach despite all that he's accomplished and coaching a team that is going to win 20 games next season. Doesn't make much sense to me. When we return right here on the Ryan Hickey Show, Terry McLaurin got paid earlier this week, right? The latest wide receiver and what has been the offseason of wide receivers to get the bag. Will any other receiver get paid this offseason? We'll discuss uh, when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thank you for making us a part of your Thursday morning. All right. So Terry McLaurin, the latest wide receiver in the offseason of receivers to get paid. Uh, He got a nice three-year extension from the Commanders. He is paid. Two receivers left. DK Metcalf of the Seahawks, Debo Samuel of the 49ers. Both want new contracts. Neither so far have a deal. I think only DK Metcalf is the one going to get a deal done before week number one. I think he will be the final receiver to get paid this offseason. And in part, it's because it's malpractice. If the Seahawks don't give DK an extension, like it makes too much sense. DK Metcalf has everything you want as a team in a receiver that you would want to reward. And we think about it, right? Like what are some generic parameters that if you're a team deciding to pay a receiver or not, you want that receiver to check? Let's say productivity, right? Don't you want your receiver to be productive? That's why you want to pay him, right? For the the yards he's put up, but also what he will do on the field. DK Metcalf in his three years uh, in Seattle has been very productive. His fewest receiving yards in a season is 900 back in his rookie year. He averages, so far in his three-year career, just over 1,000 yards per season. And he has 29 total touchdowns in three years. So the guy gets in the end zone. Again, 900 yards as his fewest receiving number, uh, fewest receiving yards in a season. He is absolutely productive. Check that box. Durable, right? You want to pay a guy who is going to be on the field and playing, not on the sidelines, in a sweatsuit. Well, in the three years DK Metcalf has been in the NFL, he's played in every single game. 16 games, 16 games, and obviously last year going up a game, 17 games. Every single game DK Metcalf has played in so far in his young career. He's young, 24 years old, right? You want to pay guys that's a young man's league. So you don't be paying guys that get to their 30s or pay them when they're over the hill. DK Metcalf is, is young, so check that box. And there's no distractions, right? You want to pay a guy that you don't have to really worry about when he leaves the facility, which so far in his three-year career, DK Metcalf has had a spotless off-the-field record. So check being a good guy, check being young, check being durable, check being productive. What else is there for DK Metcalf to do in order to accomplish getting an extension this offseason? So I don't think Seattle would be dumb enough to not pay DK Metcalf because he is everything you want in a receiver. And not to mention, he fits the plan of what Seattle's trying to accomplish perfectly. Now look, unofficially, I think the Seahawks are trying to tank this season. I think even though Pete Carroll and John Schneider publicly will say, hey, we are here to compete. We are here to win as many games as possible. Their actions don't reflect that. Now, they traded Russell Wilson and right now are sitting with a quarterback room of Drew Locke and Geno Smith and seem... Pretty comfortable going into week number one with those two quarterbacks. 
You are not winning many games. You are not trying to win many games when those two guys are your two main quarterbacks that are vying for reps this season. So your quarterback room stinks. You released Bobby Wagner earlier this offseason, let him go. And you're the worst team in your division by far. By far. So the Seattle can say what they want about competing and being here to win. They are tanking. So I get, okay, you make the argument, well, if you're tanking, why don't you trade DK Metcalf, get one, possibly, possibly, two first-round picks for DK Metcalf's talent. But here's the thing. It doesn't make much sense to trade DK Metcalf because what are you going to do with those picks? Try to draft what? The next DK Metcalf, right? Like, if you get two first-round picks, you're going to use one of them in the draft next year, most likely on a receiver, to then, you hope, be as productive, be as dominant as DK Metcalf was. So instead of drafting and taking a crapshoot and trying hoping really more than anything else that you get a, a great receiver that can live up to what DK Metcalf did, why don't you just pay the 24-year-old? Because guess what? Even though you're tanking this year, it still makes sense to keep DK Metcalf on the roster because he makes your life after the season so much easier. Right? You tank in order to do what? Draft a quarterback. You have two studs. Coming out next year in Bryce Young of Alabama, CJ Stroud of Ohio State. We'll see what other quarterback can really light it up this year and maybe rise up the draft boards as well. But you have two, so far, studs out there for the taking. Seattle should be in range to draft. right? I think to me, they're one of the five worst teams in the NFL. They'll be having a top five, top six pick. Plus, getting the extra first round pick from Denver in the Russell Wilson trade, you have ammunition in order to trade up if need be to get said quarterback. So I think this time next year, Seattle will have you know a rookie quarterback ready to go that is going to be the face of the franchise, or at least try to be the face of the franchise. Don't you want that young rookie quarterback? Don't you want to make his life easy? Don't you want to give him the best chance to succeed right away? In doing that, in giving him the best chance to succeed, that is having a receiver like DK Metcalf on the field for that quarterback to throw to. He's a great security blanket. Again, he's big, he's fast, he makes plays, he's durable, he's productive. We have seen how the wide receiver can even help elevate a quarterback scheme, even for great quarterbacks. Make your quarterback's life easy. Don't do what you did to Russell Wilson. Please, I am Seattle, I really hope you have learned your lesson from Russell Wilson and running him out of town because guess what? You made his life hell. Russell Wilson felt like he was fighting and working against the staff because Pekow is so conservative in his nature of thinking playing good defense and running the ball wins you games. It does not, Pete. Don't make the same mistake twice with your next quarterback that you hope could be the face of your franchise. In, in learning from your mistakes, one of the ways you do that is by making your quarterback's life easy. Catering to what he does well, but also giving him a security blanket out there to where he right away has someone dynamic to throw the ball to to make his life easy. I mean, if you don't believe me, look at two prime examples. Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, in his first year as a starter, threw 50 touchdown passes. Now, Patrick Mahomes is great, and you have a great offensive mind in Andy Reid as well. But one of the reasons why Patrick Mahomes was able to throw 50 touchdowns in his first year as a starter and win the MVP was because he had Travis Kelsey, top two tight end in the game, and Tyreek Hill, top three wide receiver in the game, at his disposal. You had two of the best overall weapons in the NFL on your team. That's who Patrick Mahomes was throwing to. 
So that's one of the reasons why Patrick Holmes was able to come in right away and have a lot of success. He had two, excuse me, studs, studs on the outside, in the middle, to throw the ball to. Joe Burrow last year, in year number two, one of the reasons why the Bengals went to the Super Bowl, one of the reasons why Joe Burrow had a big time year number two coming off injury, was because he had Jamar Chase destroying defenses. I know Jamar Chase is a rookie. Jamar Chase last year was one of the best wide receivers in the NFL, period. 1,400 yards, touchdown machine. He was great. He made Joe Burrow's life easier. So you have two prime examples right now in recent years of Mahomes and Burrow each having big-time success early in their careers, and each you can point to their success in, in, in one way or another being helped by the players they were throwing the ball to. So if you are Seattle with the plans of drafting a quarterback next year, developing that quarterback and having him be, you hope, the face of your franchise in the next 10 to 15 years, one of the ways you make that development faster, one of the ways that you can help ensure that quarterback is going to have success is by keeping DK Metcalf, by having him on your team and giving your quarterback that outlet, that safety blanket to rely on early on. It makes too much sense to not give DK Metcalf an extension. I think one will get done before week one. He'll be locked up going nowhere in Seattle. The reason why I don't think Debo Samuel is going to get a deal done in San Francisco is because I think there's too much uncertainty. And when I say uncertainty, it's about how Debo Samuel is going to fit in his role as only a wide receiver. We saw Debo Samuel last year have a lot of success being a wide receiver and a running back. Especially come playoff time, we saw Debo Samuel really be at his best, right? Where he was almost more running back than receiver in the playoffs. Well, now with Debo wanting to only be a receiver, I think that gives you pause if you're the 49ers about giving Debo a $25 million a year contract because there is not enough consistency from him just as a receiver. Yes, if you look at what he did in 2021, as a receiver alone, 1,400 receiving yards. He had the best year of his career. But last year, he was hurt, only had 391 yards, and year number one as a rookie, 800 yards. So it's been a roller coaster so far in the three years of Debo's career where it's been good, bad, good. Which Debo are you getting? I don't know. I mean, this is a guy who, receiver-wise, who wants to be a full-time receiver only. In his three-year career, he has just 10 total receiving touchdowns. That's it. 10 total receiving touchdowns. We were just talking about DK Metcalf, who has 29 total touchdowns in his three years. And now Debo Samuel wants to get paid big money as a receiver, 10 total receiving touchdowns, and again, was more impactful, more uh, effective as a half running back, half receiver than he was just being split out wide full-time. So I get, I absolutely get why the 49ers have hesitation. And I think that hesitation is going to want them, or is going to lead them to not getting a deal done. I think John Lynch, Kyle Shannon, they want to see how Debo Samuel fits into this offense as a wide receiver only this year. I think that's a smart move. I think it's the right move. I think it's a smart move. So I don't think a deal for Debo is getting done. I think only one more wide receiver is getting paid this offseason. I think it's DK Metcalf of the Seahawks. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Really, two big-name receivers left uh, that are trying to get contract extensions before week number one. DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel. Would you pay either? Will either or both, or maybe neither, 
Get paid this off season. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. And check us out on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can comment on the YouTube live stream. You could tweet me on Twitter or comment on the live stream that is right now uh, being broadcasted on the Bird app or on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can click right there, throw us a like while you're there, and check us out. And you can see the live stream of the show on Facebook right there. When we return on the Ryan Hickey Show, we have a startling turn of events in Freddie Freeman firing his agent. There is a report out there that has not been confirmed, but if this is true, I think it justifies Freddie Freeman's frustration with his agent and firing him. We'll discuss the latest development that came down last night when the Ryan Hickey Show returns on the Worldwide Sports Red Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So, there's been a lot of drama, a lot of questions surrounding Freddie Freeman right now and his departure from Atlanta. Now, this was all brought up because last week, or last weekend, he made his first trip back to Atlanta. For the first time since leaving in the offseason, go to the Dodgers. Now, the news came out earlier this week that Freddie Freeman officially fired his agent, Casey Close. No reason was given. He said he's fired and put out a statement, or he didn't, but the uh, MLBPA put out a statement basically saying agents do not reach out to Freddie Freeman right now. He's not interested in talking to anyone. Now, this is an unsubstantiated report. This is from only Doug Gottlieb. This has not been confirmed by the, you know, the great Ken Rosenthal or Buster Olney or any of the other great MLB insiders. This is Doug Gottlieb's reporting on Twitter, but he is saying, and he is reporting again, this is not confirmed. This is only Doug Gottlieb putting this out there, um, and, and he's the only one saying this so far. He is claiming, Doug Gottlieb is, that Freddie Freeman fired Casey Close's agent because the agent never told Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer. Freeman, when he was back in Atlanta this week, I was talking to you know old pals, talking to front office, talking to teammates. He found out in Atlanta that the Braves gave one final offer. It was a lot closer to the number that he ever anticipated, but Casey Close didn't tell him because Casey Close knew that Freddie Freeman would have taken the Atlanta deal. So he hit it from him. And that's when Atlanta pivoted uh, to go trade for Matt Olson. And that's what officially closed the door on any sort of Freeman return in Atlanta. Now again, before we go any further, this is Doug Gottlieb saying this. This has not been confirmed. This has not been backed up by any other respected MLB insider. This is just Doug Gottlieb putting this out there. Now the agent, Casey Close, did uh, put out a statement. Uh, he's represented, or he works for Excel. They put out a statement last night following this tweet saying, quote, Doug Gottlieb tweeted a wholly inaccurate characterization of our negotiations with the Atlanta Braves on behalf of Freddie Freeman. We are immediately evaluating all legal options to address the reckless publication of inaccurate information, end quote. So clearly, Casey Close is not confirming this, and he's saying quite the opposite. He is looking 
uh, whether it's you know slander, defamation, he is looking to take legal action against what Doug Gottlieb is claiming. Again, let me couch what I'm about to say with this. If this is true, if, if Doug Gottlieb is correct that Freddie Freeman's agent withheld a final offer from the Braves from Freeman because he knew Freeman would take it and instead he wanted him to go to L.A., and purposely withheld the uh, the deal so Freddie would have no choice but to go to L.A., that is the most, the most scumbag move you could ever do really in your profession. And I, I don't get the motivation here. I really don't. Like, you have to know. You, no one, no, I'm sorry. No one can be that dumb, that stupid to think the word is not going to get back. Everybody talks. Leaks get out all the time. We like social media makes it so easy for word to get back. And Freddie Freeman, at least again, if this is true, didn't want to make the reason public why he fired his agent. But guess what? Just like all leaks, people find out. If Doug Gottlieb is truly correct here, case it close. That is the biggest scumbag move you can absolutely do. And he's for sure not getting another job. That's without a doubt. Like his career is over. If you are, you know, someone represented by Casey Close, you cannot see what happened to Freddie Freeman and trust this guy that he's got to have your best intentions at heart. Again, the agent is supposed to work for you. And that's, to be honest, well, again, if this is true, well, I didn't feel much sympathy for Freddie Freeman when he was emotional earlier this week. Because you know what? At the end of the day, the agent works for you. If you wanted to stay in Atlanta, you tell your agent that even if he wants more money or doesn't think it's the right move, it doesn't matter. He works for you and a deal will get done. So I, again, didn't feel any sympathy for Freddie Freeman about missing out uh, with the Braves and instead going to the Dodgers in part because if he truly wanted to stay in Atlanta, he would have got the deal done. And again, if Doug Gottlieb's claim is correct, then I do feel really, really sympathetic for Freddie Freeman because he wanted to stay in Atlanta and he would have stayed in Atlanta if not for what was an unthinkable move pulled by his agent. Again, only Doug Gottlieb is the one reporting this. We have to just I want to put that out there to make sure there's zero confusion. This has not been confirmed. This is just one man saying this. But if that's the case, that's bad. Clearly, that's really bad. But I wonder, what I really want to kind of dive into is, how does this impact the Dodgers? Because let's not forget, the Dodgers weren't exactly thrilled with Freddie Freeman's Outward, overly emotional return to uh, return to Atlanta. Now, you had Clayton Kershaw this weekend dropping subtle hints to the media that basically tried to remind Freddie Freeman, hey, buddy, remember you know who you play for now? Like, sure, you had a lot of fun in Atlanta. Your career is there. They drafted you. You played your entire career there. You won a World Series. You got it. But don't forget the team you're on now. Clayton Kershaw's like, hey, I hope we're not second fiddle. That is a subtle jab at Freddie Freeman to almost kind of get him refocused and remind him, hey, buddy, you're still here with us. Those days in Atlanta are over. And I'll be honest, you couldn't feel great if you're a Dodger player or fan after that weekend where Freddie Freeman clearly, clearly showed he desperately wanted to be back in Atlanta. Now you find out that if this is the case, if this is true, that the only reason why Freddie Freeman is in uh, LA is because his agent pulled what is the biggest dirtbag move you could possibly do in hiding an offer because he knew his client would take it. And so he got screwed over 
and the only reason why he's in LA is because the agent screwed him over. That can't have you feeling good about Freddie Freeman's future in LA for being there in six years. I'm sorry. Maybe he gets over it. Time heals all wounds. But that, to me, is definitely going to be a, an interesting uh, fraction of the locker room to look at going forward here, if there will be a fracture. This is a very emotional time right now. And if you're a Dodger team uh, teammate or player or front office member or fan, you have to remind Freddie Freeman, hey, you're in the middle of a pennant race right now. Like, you are one of the best teams in baseball. The Mets are right in your heels. The Giants are right there. The Padres are having a, a, you know, a solid start so far. Like, this is World Series or bust. There's no time for hurt feelings to, you know, kind of trickle on in here and impact the way you play. And this can't just have you feel any better, right? If you're if you're a Dodger player, seeing how Freddie Freeman ended up on your roster. So I think this is going to have impact, you know, wide-ranging impacts, not just on Freddie Freeman right now, but on this Dodger team. This is going to be something to watch moving forward for sure. This Dodger team is off to a great start as always. Freddie Freeman, I mean, look, to be fair here, Freddie Freeman's off to a great start this year as well. He's hit over 300. He's playing really well. It's not like he is struggling per se and letting the move get to him. But now when you find out truly, you know, obviously you're sick to your stomach and you're homesick, if you will, about leaving Atlanta. And now if this story is true from Doug Gottlieb, you not only find out, you know, or you not only see how homesick Freddie Freeman was, but also truly how he got screwed over and how he really should be in Atlanta, I think it's going to have a, you know, a bigger impact on this Dodgers team than we're really thinking about. There's already some sort of distraction and some sort of animosity from some Dodger players towards Freddie Freeman for how he just almost seems to be putting the Braves above the Dodgers, even though he's not a member of the Braves anymore. Again, you rarely see players call each other out in public. Clayton Kershaw had to send a dig to Freddie Freeman. Hey, I hope we're not second fiddle. I hope Freddie Freeman still is kind of, you know, locked in here on us, the Dodgers, still focused on winning a World Series with us, the Dodgers, here in L.A., instead of thinking and always wishing he was back home. I am fascinated to see how this plays out, but I do think it's going to have a negative impact on the Dodgers moving forward because now you know in the back of your mind, this is not a guy who's bought it. This is not a guy who truly wants to be there. And if there's already, already questions about Freddie Freeman's, I won't say dedication, that's unfair, but his, his willingness to be there. It's hard to trust going forward when you know in the back of your mind this guy you know, is not truly bought in uh, on the LA experience. Hard to kind of feel great going forward, going towards you know August and September and playoff baseball that he'll be truly locked in New Carolina. So I think he's going to have you know, a negative impact slightly on the Dodgers and their locker room going forward. And it's something that you do really feel bad about. Listen, as a Mets fan, I was saying, I am definitely not sad to see Freddie Freeman go. He has killed the Mets for years on end. So him not being in Atlanta, the Mets not having to play him 18, 19 uh, times a season, it's music to my ears. It's awful the way it happened, but I'm glad to see him go. I, I cannot lie to you about that. But definitely how he went, how he got screwed over, definitely you know has you feeling sympathetic and empathetic towards his emotions because he still should be a Brave. He should be one of those players. I know it's rare now in sports with free agency and players chasing money or players chasing rings. To It's very rare to have players play on one team for their entire career. That should have been Freddie Freeman. 
all bias for me aside, it should have been Freddie Freeman as a brave for life. We had Mr. Padre being Tony Gwynn. He should have been Mr. Brave. And it's sad that if this report from Doug Gottlieb is true, that it was really robbed from him of being Mr. Brave. When we return, someone whose future is in doubt big time with his current team is Baker Mayfield. But obviously, Baker Mayfield's had a lot of attention this offseason about his future. My big question, though, is why aren't more teams interested in bringing Baker? And we'll discuss that when we return to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, so we've talked a lot of Baker Mayfield this offseason. One thing that's not been really discussed, which I don't really get why it's not getting more pub, more discussion, is the lack of interest in Baker Mayfield services. Why is it? That only two teams, the Panthers and the Seahawks, are the ones calling the Browns of possibly trading for Baker Mayfield. This is a guy who right now in the NFL is a top 15 quarterback in the league. I think if the right situation is around him, you can get to a Super Bowl and win a Super Bowl with Baker Mayfield as your quarterback. Now look, I, have, I will acknowledge you need a lot more help than you know Patrick Holmes, Josh Allen, Matt Stafford. He needs help. Don't get me wrong. You need the perfect situation to go well for Baker. But I think he's a guy, once you get to playoff time, he's already shown in the small sample size of the playoff games he's played in, he can play well and be a reason why your team wins, not loses. So to me, you have a Super Bowl caliber quarterback in Baker Mayfield. You have a top 15 guy in the NFL sitting right there. And you have a guy who is being, uh, who is able to be acquired on the cheap. Like, what, what is it going to take to trade for Baker Mayfield right now for any team? Sixth round pick? Conditional pick? Fifth? Uh, may, like maybe we're talking fifth round pick at best, maybe fourth, fourth round, fifth round, sixth round pick. That to me is a tr- tremendous bargain for a quarterback of Baker Mayfield's talent, and his price tag is reasonable as well. Eighteen point eight million dollars is not expensive. We have guys getting Dak Prescott is getting forty plus million dollars a year, and you're telling me teams are saying Baker Mayfield is too too expensive at eighteen point eight million dollars? What a bargain! So he's cheap salary-wise. He, You can acquire him on the cheap in terms of what you have to get up for draft capital. He's a top 15 quarterback. He's a Super Bowl caliber quarterback. Why is it that two teams are calling the Browns and no one else is? I get timing sure has a little to do with it because the Browns you know, got Watson late and the commanders, let's say, made a move already for Carson Wentz. Stupid. As a Colts fan, trust me, good luck, Washington. Good luck with that. But if you were even a team like, let's say, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who that's been a team I've been advocating to make a trade for Baker Mayfield for, you have Tom Brady this year without a doubt. He's your starter. But next year, is there any confidence Tom Brady's back in a Tampa Bay Buccaneers uniform? I say no. He's either going to retire, which he already did once, so you know it's on the table. And also, number two, the Dolphin rumors are going nowhere. Right, We know Miami tried to pull off this coup of hiring Sean Payton and Tom Brady on their team next year. It almost worked. And was it for Brian Flores' lawsuit, Tom Brady would be a, a Miami Dolphin uh, right now. Either front office member, quarterback, or both. 
So that interest in Miami is real. So I think with Brady about to be a free agent, it's anything but a guarantee he's back in Tampa Bay. So if you're the Buccaneers, who you are hoping and looking to have sustained success past Tom Brady, this is not a team that's built on one-year contracts, and after Tom Brady leaves, you're going to go back in a tank and lose. You have extended a lot of your key players to keep this run going. So why wouldn't you want to trade for Baker Mayfield, get him on the cheap, have him sip on Tom Brady, learn behind the GOAT, get familiar with the offense, get familiar with the players on the team, and when Tom Brady leaves or retires next year, have Baker Mayfield step into the fold to take over and play for Tom Brady and lead this Buccaneers offense back to the playoffs. Like, well, what else is Tampa Bay going to do? You're going to draft a quarterback? Well, with Tom Brady, assuming he doesn't get hurt, you're not going to be anywhere near the top to get a quarterback. You're going to go after Kirk Cousins? You want to have fun with that experiment? You want to go sign maybe Jameis Winston? Like, There's not many free agent options that are sexy out there at all. Baker right now is out there for the taking. And no one is interested. And it makes no sense. Yes, I get 2021 was bad. I get Baker Mayfield, for lack of a better word, sucked. I'll tell you, as a Baker fan, I guess, just someone who, I guess, believes in him more than a lot of other people do, I will absolutely acknowledge he was horrible last year. There's no excuses. Or there's no, I should say, there's no hiding it. There's no hiding. He was terrible. But are we going to really sit here and pretend like 2021 wasn't impacted by injuries? Like that shoulder injury had nothing to do with his poor play? He hurt in week two. So basically, he dealt with that shoulder injury for the entirety of the season. And then hurt it even worse a few weeks later after initially hurting against the Texans in week two, hurt it a few weeks later against the Cardinals uh, when J.J. Watt fell on his left shoulder. He was in a lot of pain. It really impacted his throwing motion, his accuracy, his, his zip on the ball. Baker made poor decisions on his own at times, and that's on him. But also, he was not helped out by having a really bum left shoulder that was impacting the way he threw the ball. So I think when you look at Baker Mayfield, he is more the quarterback moving forward of 2020 Baker Mayfield than, let's say, 2021 Baker Mayfield. But even if you look at their totality so far of his four-year career in Cleveland, look at what he's had to overcome. Like, this is a guy that, sure, if you want to nitpick and say, oh, Baker Mayfield's not a, not a, a top-five quarterback in the NFL or top-ten, he's not. But look at the success already he has had in his short career and the adversity he, had to, he has had to overcome. This is a guy who was drafted number one overall to the Browns. His first head coach in the NFL was Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson. Awful. Can anyone right now name to me the quarterback who had success under Hugh Jackson? You can't. Whether it was in Oakland or whether it was in Cleveland, every single quarterback struggled under Hugh Jackson. Why? Because he's a terrible coach. Terrible. Horrible. He was too invested, too worried about his power and reminding everyone he was the head coach instead of actually developing his players on the field. So you had Hugh Jackson as Baker Mayfield's first head coach. You had Greg Williams as the interim later on in that rookie year. And then in year number two, you somehow, this is very hard to do, you somehow went from bad in Hugh Jackson to worse with Freddie Kitchens. (laughs) That was a total disaster. That was a dumpster fire falling off of a cliff into the pit of misery. That is what that 2019 season was. So Baker Mayfield, in the first two years of his career, had head coaches of Hugh Jackson, Greg Williams, and Freddie Kitchens. Three head coaches the first three years of his career. 
Four if you want to count Greg Williams as the interim for like 10 games. And before that, this was a Browns franchise that had 10 consecutive losing seasons before Baker's arrival. They were the laughing stock of the NFL. So you had a losing organization that was always, you know, shooting themselves in the foot, couldn't get out of their own way. They draft Baker. You have Hugh Jackson. You have Freddie Kitchens. You have a total mess of a franchise and an organization that Baker had to deal with. Despite all of those shortcomings, all of that adversity, all of that BS he had to put up with and go through in the first two years of his career, Kevin Stefanski comes in in year number three, and this team goes to the playoffs. For the first time since 2002, Baker Mayfield leads the Browns to the playoffs. For the first time in 26 years, Baker Mayfield leads the Browns to a playoff victory. They won a playoff game for the first time at that point in my lifetime. I had never seen a Browns playoff win in my life. And anyone close to my age, as a Browns fan, could never claim to have seen or remembered a playoff victory in your life. And Baker Mayfield was a quarterback to get you there, to do it. And in that playoff game, played well. He wasn't along for the ride like Jimmy G was. He played well against the Steelers. 263 yards in that playoff game. Three touchdowns, no picks, 91 QBR. If you remember, Ben Roethlisberger threw four picks in that game. So Baker Mayfield not only helped get the Browns to the playoffs, he was a big reason why they won that playoff game. But it wasn't even just one game. If you want a bigger sample size than one playoff game, I got it for you. In 2020, the final eight games of that season, the final six regular season games and the two playoff games the Browns played in, you put those together. Baker Mayfield in that final stretch of the season threw 15 touchdowns, two picks. He played his best football at the most important part of the season, post-Thanksgiving football, where it truly gets real. We truly separate the contenders from the pretenders. Baker Mayfield stepped up and played his best stretch of his career when it mattered most for Cleveland. So why are NFL franchises, why are the other 29 NFL franchises right now, really even 34 to include the Browns, why are they viewing him like he's Josh Rosen? I'm not faulting Cleveland for getting an upgrade in Sean Watson. Sean Watson's a way better quarterback than Baker Mayfield. But how come right now with Baker Mayfield on the trading block, on the trading block for pretty cheap, how come only the Panthers and the Seahawks are calling? Why are we pretending like Baker Mayfield is Josh Rosen? Jamarcus Russell. Like, what are we doing? Why isn't he getting more calls and more looks and more thought? It makes no sense. And even the two teams, mind you, that are giving Baker some thought, Seattle and Carolina, are kind of like one foot in, one foot out. Like you look at Matt Rule. Matt Rule's on the hot seat. Is unofficially playoffs or bust for Carolina is what we think. And with David Tepper's um, impatience, we think it's going to be either playoffs or Matt Rule's fired. So if that's the case, Matt Rule's on the hot seat. And Matt Rule right now is truly ready to roll into 2022, needing his quarterback to play well, and that quarterback room being filled with Sam Darnold, P.J. Walker, and Matt Corral. Seattle, Pete Cowell, John Schneider, at least outwardly saying, we want to compete, we want to win. But yet you have a quarterback room of Geno Smith and Drew Locke, and here both Seattle and Carolina are, haggling about money with the Browns, about acquiring Baker Mayfield? Baker Mayfield is better than any of those five quarterbacks. You could put all five together. 
Those five quarterbacks I just listed, put them together, take the best thing from each of their games, put it in one quarterback and make a super quarterback. They're still not as good as Baker Mayfield. So you have two desperate teams that have two of the worst quarterback rooms in the NFL. You have teams that are outwardly telling you they want to win, but yet are sitting here kind of, eh, you know what? We'll only take Baker Mayfield if you pay half the money. Actually, on second thought, we want you to pay three quarters of the salary for the Browns before we'll take Baker Mayfield. Basically, wanting him for free. So even the two teams that are interested in Baker are not fully all in and they're kind of just, you know, tiptoeing around and only wanting Baker if basically he's for free. Why is there no interest in a guy that helped get a dysfunctional franchise, the most dysfunctional franchise in the NFL, to the playoffs and win a playoff game? Why is he not getting calls? In a league that is bereft of great quarterback talent, why is no one giving Baker Mayfield the shot? Baker Mayfield is not a great quarterback. But I told you before, I think if the situation is right, you can win a Super Bowl with Baker Mayfield. What we saw in the playoffs in 2020 and down the stretch, again, 15 touchdowns, two picks, played the best stretch of football in the most important time in the brand new Cleveland Browns franchise history. But if we say when they restarted the team after you know the initial Browns moved from Cleveland to Baltimore, if we say in the new Browns era only, that was the most important stretch of football in that franchise's history. And Baker Mayfield played his best there. Why are we ignoring that? Why is everyone getting wrapped up in 2021 when a shoulder injury, for me, had more to do with it than his poor, you know, had more to do with his poor play than Baker just being a bad quarterback? Why is everyone turning a blind eye and, and conveniently forgetting that 2020 never happened? It's not like the bubble in the NBA where we've seen like anomalies form where players have played great because there's no fans and you're in Disney and you're in a bubble and you're just playing just almost like you're playing backyard hoops. We've seen plenty of players explode in the bubble and then not back it up since. This is not that case. 2020, even though we played in the pandemic, was relatively normal outside of crowd capacity. Why is it the fact that we are now, or not we, but NFL teams, I should say, are turning a blind eye to a quarterback Whereas if you look around the rest of the league, look at the 32 starting quarterbacks right now in the NFL. Baker Mayfield is better than half of them. Baker Mayfield is better than half of the quarterbacks in the NFL right now. But with that said, only two are calling. And two aren't even fully interested. Why is that? Why are no teams giving Baker Mayfield the respective reserves? It makes no sense. It truly makes zero sense to me. This is a guy that is out there for the taking. This is a guy that I think you can absolutely buy low on, get him for the cheap, and you can invest and have him be your guy for the long haul. I don't think he'll ever be a top five quarterback, but I do think you could still win a Super Bowl with a guy of Baker Mayfield's caliber. So why is it that we are sitting here and no one is calling the Browns? They're basically giving away. It's a flea market. It's a flash sale. They've been sitting on Baker Mayfield knowing that he's going to be traded for two months. Yet the only two teams calling are Carolina and Seattle. And still, they're not even that interested. Baker is a way better quarterback than he is getting credit for. And it boggles my mind. The NFL is missing the boat on Baker Mayfield. Big time. This is a guy, whoever does get him, I think to me laughing 
at the rest of the league that they took this guy for free when everyone else could have had a chance to get him. I think the Buccaneers would be the perfect landing spot for Baker Mayfield if it's not in Cleveland. Hell, if you're Cleveland, if, if Deshaun Watson suspended for a year, I'd go crawling back to Baker. I don't want Jacoby Brissett playing uh, and starting 17 games. You owe it to your own locker room to give yourself the best chance to win. That is what Baker Mayfield now with Jacoby Brissett. But even still, the Browns have no interest, seemingly, in bringing Baker, Mac, uh, bringing Baker back for a one-year reunion. Sometimes we try to overcomplicate. Sometimes we try to just overanalyze uh, and point out too many critiques instead of just recognizing this guy is a good football player. This guy is a good football player that the rest of the NFL right now is overlooking and disrespecting. Make sure you check out the show. We're on there on all social medias at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, Worldwide Sports Radio Network on YouTube. Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook. Check us out. The Baker Mayfield disrespect is absurd. Absurd. So that will do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. Very excited. We'll be traveling to Ireland next Friday. So the show will be off in a few weeks for a, a little bit while we are across the pond. Don't worry, though. We'll still be posting content, still be posting videos. So make sure you're still following Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. We're on TikTok. Brand new peanut butter review. Hopefully you've been enjoying them. That will be posted later today as well. We try Skippy Extra Crunchy. So not the official Skippy peanut butter review. Since it's extra crunchy, we're going to keep everything uh, consistent. But we will have a peanut butter review out there shortly. So make sure you check that out. Again, Ryan Hickey Show on all social media handles. Twitter, Facebook, and uh, TikTok. And YouTube as well. And YouTube and Instagram as well. I can't even keep track. My apologies. So, have a great rest of your weekend. Happy July 4th weekend. Enjoy the holiday weekend. Enjoy the sun. Enjoy the beach. Enjoy the surf. Enjoy friends. We'll talk to you next Thursday right here. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.